The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1871, a 16-year-old French boy wrote, quote, I'm now making myself as scummy as I can. Why? I want to be a poet, and I'm working at turning myself into a seer. You won't understand any of this, and I'm almost incapable of explaining it to you. The idea is to reach the unknown by the derangement of all the senses. It involves enormous suffering, but one must be strong and be a born poet. It's really not my fault. End quote. That boy's name was Arthur Rimbaud, and for the next handful of years, he burned his way through literary France like a meteor, going to prison, having affairs, breaking up marriages, getting shot by his lover and supporter, the poet Paul Verlaine, living an insane life, and all the while writing poetry and prose poems that changed the course of French letters and went on to influence generations of poets, songwriters, artists, and other would-be troubadours. He stopped writing verse poetry before he was 20, and by the time he was 21, he'd given up literature for good, roaming the world and working instead as an arms dealer, among other things, still living hard. His leg needed amputation at one point, and he died when he was 37. Hmm. Whoa. Lot to cover. <laughs> the story of Rimbaud. Today on the history of literature. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. I'm so glad you're here. What a time to be alive. My goodness, there's so much pain and suffering these days. It's almost overwhelming, and there's good news, too. So, let's focus on that for a moment. My friend called me the other day. She's been secretly reading along with the Proust Together team on Twitter, and by that I mean she hasn't been tweeting, just reading along, and she said they're on the penultimate volume of Proust's masterpiece, and it's getting good. They've gotten over the hump, and now they are coasting to the finish, and I said, just wait. The next volume is even better, and you will feel like you've earned it. You've earned the experience. It's a lot like that trip to the mountaintop. Just wait until you get there, and you know you're at the top. You've been working hard, and now you can breathe in deeply and look around. What a vista is in store for you. So that's good news, that reading still works. I'm partially vaccinated, almost there, which is also good news, although we have got to get this vaccine out to more people and more countries. My heart is breaking for those countries that are still being hit hard. Stay safe, everyone. So today on the podcast, we're going to look at one of literature's great comets, a meteor, I think I call them, although this is not the kind of meteor I like. <laughs> I find it interesting. I find him interesting. How could you not? Rimbaud's life was packed so full with so much mystery. So much is so open and so much is still a mystery. But I prefer, I sort of prefer Keats, the physician in training or the surgical assistant in training who knew he was going to die. He knew what he had. Or Chekhov, the doctor, same thing, same disease, in fact, tuberculosis or consumption. What a name for a disease. Consumption. The disease that consumes. There's something very medieval about that name, something awful about the way those diseases took on names where symptoms were described, or the name is non-scientific, dropsy, rickets, scurvy, consumption. It's as if they were just throwing up their hands. They had no idea what was happening or why. They only knew that it was bad. Undefinable except for the symptoms or nickname, the plague, black death. Okay. Didn't I say we were going to focus on good news today? <laughs> Sorry. Rimbaud was talented. I guess you'd call him a genius. But in a way, I think we maybe never not to, never got to know his true genius because in some ways he didn't really grow up. He gave up before he grew up. He died young, but not as young as Keats. 
but he gave up literature even before then. He gave it up. He lived, it'd be like a high schooler. Imagine if LeBron James had just hung it up before he even joined the NBA. That's about what this is like. He, he, uh, we'd still wonder. We might admire what he did in high school, but we'd wonder what would he have done had he kept going? Well, in some ways, maybe he gave us all he had to give. So anyway, all this is interesting. We'll get to that. I wanted to catch you up on some news, some podcast news. We got an email from a listener named James, who is a high school teacher, who asked if we would consider doing an episode on the beast in the jungle. And although we just looked at Henry James not too long ago, we barely had time to scratch the surface. So yes, let's do it. I started reading the rereading The Beast in the Jungle and I almost scrapped Rimbaud. Almost throughout the whole schedule, I was having such a good time. Such a good story. And yet James is extremely frustrating sometimes too. It's like a meal that takes forever to make. It's worth it in the end, but you think, oh, did it have to be quite that hard? Well, maybe it did. If a Thanksgiving meal was something you popped in the microwave and you could eat one every night, with no prep and no fuss, maybe it wouldn't be the same. I don't know if that's the right analogy, but I'm not going to go backwards in time to fix it now. <laughs> You'll have to live with that analogy, as will I. No, sir. No chance of me time traveling backwards today. I'm saving my time travel for things that are truly important, which I will leave to your imagination. And no, it doesn't involve placing bets on sporting events and it doesn't involve assassinating assassins. But it doesn't not involve those things either. Okay, another email, another piece of good news. We're up to three now, by the way. Is that I spoke with our Brazilian friend. Remember her? The first one, the first Brazilian friend. We've had four or five now, I think. Maybe it's even six. All these Brazilian friends who've emailed to say they like the show. They listen to the show, and when are you going to talk about Machado de Assis? Well, I did. I talked to our Brazilian friend, who's a journalist and an author, and who is studying literature now in a serious way, and it was an excellent conversation, as is Machado de Assis. So we will have that episode coming up soon, probably in June, which is shaping up to be a big month. Remember, we're going back to two episodes a week for that month due to some scheduling irregularities we had here with us and our sponsors, but we'll be glad to do it. One more little thing to share before we dive into Rimbo. This is from a great filmmaker, a great human being, the German director and auteur, Werner Herzog. People laugh at Herzog. He's so Herzogian. He's so, I don't, I don't know how to describe him. He's so earnest and yet his accent in English is so comical. He's someone who gets imitated a lot. I will say that maybe he gets imitated a little too frequently now. Paul F. Tompkins was one of the first and the best. It's too bad so many people followed in his footsteps, and it's been watered down since then a bit. I don't think Paul F. Tompkins even does it anymore. But Herzog is a favorite of mine. Those movies with Klaus Kinski are incredible. I'll give you three to watch Aguirre, Wrath of God, Fitzcarraldo, and My Best Fiend. I think they might say Aguirre instead of Aguirre, but in any case, read about those movies and watch them. They are incredible. And Herzog has made some great documentaries too. He's one of those guys who really thinks hard about art and life and what it means to live, the nature of existence what it means to be a human being. And he agonizes over this, but he's also very funny. He has a light touch. His agony is engaging. So here's something he said the other day. Actually, you know what? I was trying to find something he said the other day, and I could not find it. I could not find it. I'll keep looking. Maybe we'll do, maybe we'll do multiple little segments on Werner Herzog. He's awesome. That will be worth it. I'll keep looking, but this particular quote is proving to be elusive. So instead, I'm going to give you a different gem. Werner Herzog was being interviewed by the BBC, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago now, and they were outside talking 
alongside a road. And while they were talking, he was shot in the stomach. And he just kept going. It's an insignificant bullet. He said he just kept talking. This guy, maybe <laughs> maybe we're going to need to do a full episode on Werner Herzog and his films. But anyway, take a listen to this. It's about 90 seconds of incredible audio. This is Werner Herzog, the story of him being shot while he was in mid-interview. Yeah, I mean, you, you've sort of got previous with, with <laughs> Werner Herzog, haven't you? Because uh, there, was, there was a bit of a, a story about him being shot when he was with you, and I think he's been talking it up in the press, hasn't what, he? It, what's happened is, when I interviewed Herzog for The Culture Show a while ago for about his film Grizzly Man, we, I was interviewing him in Los Angeles, out on an open road, and in the middle of the interview, he got shot. He now has been telling that story and dining out, and every time he tells the story, he becomes more courageous, which I have to say he was, and we, the BBC, become more and more cowardly. It's like, oh, yes, they were ducking and running away, <laughs> but I was just standing there to me. It is an insignificant bullet. Well, I think in the uh, mood of fairness and transparency that the BBC is embracing at the moment, we can all relive that as it actually happened right now. In Germany, uh, I've somehow left a paved road. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares about my films. For example, what's... What was that? We quickly realised that some wacko had taken a pot shot at us with an air rifle and Herzog had been hit. So this, ju sorry, this literally just happened when we were standing outside there. Camera. <laughs> and there was a noise and it was a whiz and you just said, I've been shot. You had, Look, you're yeah, bleeding. Yeah. I think here somewhere, yeah. Look, you I mean, that's a, that's a somebody sh shot at you and created a wound in your abdomen. It's not not significant. The scariest thing about that is that when he reveals the bullet wound, it's hard not to go. But he's wearing paisley boxer shorts. Werner <laughs> Herzog, the man who's been in the jungles of Peru, he wears paisley boxer shorts. Oh, bless him. He likes a little bit of luxury underneath. <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all, Mark? <laughs> so what's next? Uh, also Mm, an insignificant bullet. Okay, that catches you up a bit on what's going on behind the scenes here, what's in store for us, and guess what? Herzog is sort of a Rimbaud-like figure himself. He dove deep into his art, too, especially when he was younger. And the main difference between the two might be that Herzog stuck around for another 40 years, aging, still devoted to his art. 50 years, I guess it's, geez, 60 years now. Whereas Rimbaud gave it all up. Don't you want to know why and how and what happened? You might say, well, Herzog. Another difference is Herzog is a filmmaker, not a poet. But you know what? It's hard to find examples of Rimbaud in poetry today. Not because they aren't out there, these poets, but because poetry doesn't have the place in our cultural world that it did in 19th century France. Today, we would look to a bad boy actor, maybe, or a filmmaker, or a songwriter. Something like that. So, in any case, let's take a quick break and then dive into the world of Artur. From auteur to Artur, or as we say in English, Arthur, which is also okay. The symbolist poet, Rimbaud. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The German writer Thomas Bernhard delivered an address on the 100th anniversary of Rimbaud's birth. He said, quote, This is about remembering Jean-Arthur Rimbaud. Thank God he was a Frenchman. Let us then believe in the power and the glory of the poetic world. Let us believe in the everlasting life of the spirit, in the resilience of images of the dead and visions, as they emerge from between the pages of a few great men, exceptions of the sort that appear just once or twice in a century. Let's not deceive ourselves. The mighty, thrilling, stirring, and calming, the enduring. These do not grow like common sorrel in a summer field. Such great verse, to which humanity owes its glimpse into the depths, does not emerge every day, nor every year. Several thousand books must be pounded out before the machine makes an elemental lunge and presents us with one, if only one, significant piece of world literature. Those that forever hang on the big bell and can be heard clear to the pubs, the journal poets, and the export articles of literature, they are mostly well-coiffed manufacturers of drivel and trend. In literature, the only thing that matters is the original, indeed, the elemental, like Jean-Arthur Rimbaud. The poet of France was truly elemental. His verses were of flesh and blood. A hundred years is nothing for this master of words, the untranslatable Rimbaud. He grabbed hold of life unconventionally by the roots, packed it full of awe and an obsession with death. His poetry is finished. At the age of 23, he snapped shut his book, his drunken boat, his illuminations, his season in hell. Never again did he take up the quill to write poetry. The disgust of literature had seized him. He was done. It was enough. Absurd, ridiculous, disgusting. Thus did Rimbaud reply when someone spoke with admiration of his poetry and tried to win him back to French literature. End quote. Well, they did not win him back. We know that. He was done. But how did he get there? How did he get to that point? Let's hear some more praise first. We hear that he, we know that he heavily influenced T.S. Eliot and Samuel Beckett and John Ashbery, who translated him. Victor Hugo, his contemporary, called him the infant Shakespeare. Bob Dylan was a fan, both of the poetry and the person. You can draw a line from Rimbaud to the symbolists, to the dataists, and the surrealists. He changed poetry, and then he wrote prose poems and changed that too. The way he used language was inventive and different. I'm not sure we'll capture all of that in the translations that I'll read for you today into English. might give you a taste, a glimpse, but I suppose if you read French in the original, you would have a different take on Rimbaud. Rimbaud himself, speaking of praise, he was not shy about praising himself, at least when he was still writing poetry. The photographs of him from that period are shocking. This is, we're in the post-romantic world now in poetry. He's got all those romantic poets as models for the centrality of poetry and the poetic endeavor. In our Writer's Block episode, we talked about this, how, how you can believe yourself to be a poet that's a trope we still have today. You can, you can believe yourself to be a poet even if you haven't ever written poetry, which might have started with the romantics, but it certainly didn't end there, as anyone who's strolled through a campus coffee shop today might find. I am a poet, one might declare. I know it. I know I am. I know I'm a poet. I'm telling you this. I feel it. <laughs> it's unusual. Most things don't allow you to just announce that. They require you to actually do it, to have some success at it before you can say that. But look in those campus coffee shops. Look for the sad eyes or the angry eyes. 
and the black clothes and the furious scribblers, or maybe they're not scribbling at all. They're waiting for the muse, which is another romantic era invention. By the time Rimbaud came along, he also had Baudelaire as a model for him. And so someone like Rimbaud could announce, quote, I am an inventor far more deserving than all those who have preceded me, a musician, moreover, who has discovered something like the key of love, end quote. This was sort of his calling card in those early years, this arrogance. I'm the guy. I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the artist. I see things others don't. It's frankly, to me at least, something of a weakness of his. It's the young person's idea of being a poet, of wanting to be a poet, of saying, you guys all have it wrong. You do this and this and this, and I see through all that. I see through it, so I will be different. Then you write the poems, and it might be different in some ways. Maybe it's not quite as different as you thought it would be in your mind, and maybe you don't quite get to a point where you talk about human beings or the human condition, the flesh and blood. You spend so much time thinking about yourself as a poet and writing about the way you're going to live as a poet. Look, it has some appeal. I'm not denying that. It's intoxicating, and when it works, as it did with Rimbaud, it's a model, I suppose. It appeals especially to young people who are frustrated and stifled and who want to use art to break free who view themselves as artistic souls being held down by everyone else. But then Rimbaud gave it up. That was cowardly, said Camus. Camus had a lot of praise for Rimbaud as well. He said he was the true rebel, the poet of revolt, the greatest. Here's a longer quote from Camus about Rimbaud. And don't worry, we're going to get to the chronology. We'll march through Rimbaud's life and all of that. But let me get some, some of the after effects of Rimbaud out there first, so you see what the stakes were. Here's Camus. says, quote, Hawthorne was able to say of Melville that, as an unbeliever, he was extremely uneasy in his unbelief. It can equally well be said of the poets who rushed to assault the heavens with the intent of turning everything upside down, that by so doing, they affirmed their desperate nostalgia for order. As an ultimate contradiction, they wanted to extract reason from unreason and to systematize the irrational. These airs of romanticism claim to make poetry exemplary and to find, in its most harrowing aspects, the real way of life. They deified blasphemy and transformed poetry into experience and into a means of action. Until their time, those who claimed to influence men and events, at least in the Occident, did so in the name of rational rules. On the contrary, surrealism, after Rimbaud, wanted to find constructive rules in insanity and destruction. Rimbaud, through his work, and only through his work, pointed out the path, but with the blinding, momentary illumination of a flash of lightning. Surrealism excavated this path and codified its discoveries. By its excesses as well as by its retreats, it gave the last and most magnificent expression to a practical theory of irrational rebellion at the very same time when, on another path, rebellious thought was founding the cult of absolute reason. While Tremont and Rimbaud, its sources of inspiration, demonstrate by what stages the irrational desire to accept appearances can lead the rebel to adopt courses of action completely destructive to freedom. End quote. That's Camus in The Rebel. So, let's leave these two sides in place for now. The criticism that Rimbaud never grew up and didn't really deliver what literature delivers at its best. That's the criticism. And the praise, of course, that is poetry changed poetry. That's the upside. That's why he's still famous why Bob Dylan writes songs about him and Leonardo DiCaprio plays him in the movies. That and his reputation as a meteor or a comet, a bad boy of literature, a young poet who lived hard and flamed out fast, sacrificing himself and then giving up poetry, not for some boring desk job, but for a wild ride as a soldier and a mercenary and an arms dealer who went to the Indies and the Middle East and Africa, not just a poet, but a lightning bolt, an explosion. Okay, let's start at the beginning, or actually a little before with his parents. Oh, 
Wait, before I get there, we have one more loose thread. I think I mentioned the shocking photographs at the beginning of this. He looks so young. That's what's so shocking. He was writing poetry, and he was truly just a boy, a baby-faced boy. The infant Shakespeare, baby Shakespeare, must have astounded everyone. Well, we know it did astound everyone, although the people around him didn't always appreciate that at the time. Okay, let's turn to <laughs> let's turn to his life. Rimbaud's father was a soldier, an army captain who had distinguished himself in far-flung campaigns like the conquest of Algeria. He was apparently a great lover of life, a genial man, smiley, a good laugher. Generous and good-natured is how he's described, and he was somewhat literary. He wrote guides to learning Arabic and translated the Koran into French. And one day, he was out for a Sunday stroll in the city in northern France where he was posted, and he met the woman who would become his wife, and she was pretty much the exact opposite of him. Stingy, humorless, stubborn, quiet, and mean. Their marriage lasted seven years. Captain Rimbaud was there at the home for a total of about three months. That was the longest stretch that he spent with his wife and their children. The rest of the time, he went off to the Crimean War and battles in Sardinia and elsewhere. He seems to have mainly come home to stay briefly and impregnate his wife. That sounds a little harsh, but it's pretty much true. They had six kids in seven years. Captain Rimbaud wasn't there for the births or the baptisms of any of them. The kids barely knew him at all. And after the separation, which happened when Arthur, who was the second oldest, was about six, he never visited again. The wife, Rimbaud's mother, called herself a widow, and the captain called himself a widower, and the kids moved on as well. They never tried to see their father again, and vice versa. Years later, Arthur had a bit of a connection with him of sorts when he used the captain's materials to help him learn Arabic. But otherwise, they were the products of their mother's influence, these kids, and she was tough and severe. She homeschooled them for years until she got worried that their neighborhood was a little rough. So they moved to a nicer neighborhood with a nicer home, and there was a better school there in Rimbaud attended public school, but the influence of his mother was already firmly in place. When he caused trouble, she punished him by making him memorize verses in Latin. And if that didn't work, if he didn't learn them by heart, she cut off his meals until he got it right. She kept the boys on a tight leash, walking them, Rimbo and his older brother, she walked them to and from school every day. He hated the imposition he hated school and the rules and his mother's rules. He wrote an essay complaining that he didn't need a classical education because he said he would be a rentier, which meant a man with an income, someone who lives off of an income, a wealthy person who doesn't necessarily work but has the money to live from collecting rent or receiving investment income, passive income, we would say. Rimbaud's mother was also quite religious. And Arthur followed her down that path firmly, or so it seemed from the outside. He was very successful at it. He was the brilliant one in the family. He was the one who mastered languages easily. And his mother hired a private tutor for him in the third grade. She recognized his potential. He was encouraged to write verse. And he started winning prizes for poems written in French and in Latin. He was also known in these early years for his appearance small and pale, with thin brown hair, and his eyes pale blue irradiated with dark blue, said one friend, eyes like no other, intense and lovely. He was reading adventure stories in these days, along with the Bible. When you read these stories of Rimbaud as, as an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old, you can't escape the feeling that even as he was succeeding in the rules of the game that was being set out for him, he was also wound up pretty tight. That he was smart and he knew it, but he was stifled as well, and his mother pushed him hard, but his spirit was pushing back. Something had to give, and it didn't take long before it did. This is a boy 
who at age 15 was still being walked home from school by his mother, who wouldn't let him out of her sight. And then that summer, as France entered into war between France and Prussia, Rimbaud ran away. He jumped a train for Paris without a ticket or the money to pay for one. When he arrived in Paris, he was arrested and thrown in jail. Desperate, he wrote a letter to, not to his mother, but to his school tutor who came and got him. And it took about a month before he was finally returned home to his mother. And his mother responded by slapping him across the face and yelling at the tutor. Ten days later, Rimbaud ran away again. It probably helped fuel his restlessness and his confidence that he was also successful at this time, successful as a poet. A poem he'd written when he was 15, the first one he'd ever shown to his tutor, is still heavily anthologized. It's an ode to Ophelia, Hamlet's Ophelia, and it's still considered one of Rimbaud's best, one of a handful of his best poems, although Rimbaud was still developing his view of poetry and himself as a poet. At the time, he was 16, turned 16, starting to get out of control. He grew his hair, he often got drunk, he antagonized people on purpose, provoking them just because he stole books from stores, and he put into place his view of what he wanted to do. Write a new kind of poetry, and not just write it, not just develop the idea for it and then carry it out. Like a, a scholar, like a scholarly poet might, but change the world, the, the, change the way he saw the world, and then write poetry from his changed state. Think of a guy... In the 1960s, a filmmaker, a painter, a songwriter, a poet, a novelist, someone who plans to drop LSD and turn off his mind, relax and float downstream. That kind of change. I will become a seer, he said, as I, I said in that quote in the beginning. I will be a visionary. I will be a poet. I will suffer for this. I will get there through a long, immense and rational derangement of all the senses. That's quite a phrase. Long might take a while. Immense would be a, a serious undertaking and rational derangement of all the senses. A rational derangement. I'm going to, this is going to be systematic. I'm going to be thorough about this. I'm dedicated to it. This is not someone who says, I'm going to get drunk tonight and pick up the pen and see what happens. This is. Or, or somewhat uh, tonight I'm gonna I'm gonna drop acid and have an experience. This is someone who's saying, I'm going to break myself down and see what's left. I'm going to get rid of all of these strictures that are in place in my mind. Poetry is at my core. I believe I believe I am a poet, but I have to get to my core. The tools Rimbaud had were not LSD, but hashish and absinthe and antisocial behavior. So he wrote some more poems. He had his tutor, who seemed helpful, had, had admired him, recognized his talent. He had a few friends, but mostly he was unknown. Remember, he's still only 16, but he's confident, even cocky, and he's burning up. He wrote to some famous poets who didn't really write back or seemed to be humoring him only. Thank you for your letter, that kind of thing. And then, in one of those great literary moments, a friend suggested that he write to the poet Paul Verlaine, who was 10 years older than, than Rimbaud. Pretty well established by then. He had a couple of collections out. Rimbaud wrote him a few letters and sent his poems along, and then Verlaine wrote back. He was intrigued by Rimbaud and the poetry he had seen, and he wrote, quote, Come, dear great soul, we await you, we desire you. And he included a one-way ticket to Paris. Excited by the invitation, Rimbaud wrote one of his most famous poems, The Drunken Boat. I'm going to read this one to you to give you a sense of what he was writing at the time. This is... The man determined to derange all his senses and find a vision, though he hasn't quite got there yet. This is the 16-year-old Rimbaud, the drunken boat. 
As I was going down impassive rivers, I no longer felt myself guided by haulers. Yelping redskins had taken them as targets and had nailed them naked to colored stakes. I was indifferent to all crews, the bearer of Flemish wheat or English cottons, when with my haulers this uproar stopped. The rivers let me go where I wanted, into the furious lashing of the tides. More heedless than children's brains, the other winter I ran. And loosened peninsulas have not undergone a more triumphant hubbub. The storm blessed my sea vigils lighter than a cork. I danced on the waves that are called eternal rollers of victims. Ten nights without missing the stupid eye of the lighthouses. Sweeter than the flesh of hard apples is to children, the green water penetrated my hull of fur and washed me of spots of blue wine and vomit, scattering rudder and grappling hook, and from then on I bathed in the poem of the sea, infused with stars and lactescent, devouring the azure verses where, like a pale elated piece of flotsam, a pensive drowned figure sometimes sinks when suddenly, dying the blueness, delirium, and slow rhythms under the streaking of daylight, stronger than alcohol, vaster than our lyres, the bitter redness of love ferments. I know the skies bursting with lightning, and the waterspouts, and the surf, and the currents. I know the evening, and dawn as exalted as a flock of doves, and at times I have seen what man thought he saw. I have seen the low sun, spotted with mystic horrors, lighting up with long violet clots, resembling actors of very ancient dramas, the waves rolling far off their quivering of shutters. I have dreamed the green night with dazzled snows, a kiss slowly rising to the eyes of the sea, the circulation of unknown saps, and the yellow and blue awakening of singing phosphorus. I followed during pregnant months the swell, like hysterical cows, in its assault on the reefs, without dreaming that the luminous feet of the Marys could constrain the snout of the wheezing oceans. I struck against, you know, unbelievable Floridas, mingling with flowers, panthers, eyes, and human skin, rainbows stretched like bridal reins under the horizon of the seas to greenish herds. I have seen enormous swamps ferment, fish traps, where a whole leviathan rots in the rushes, avalanches of water in the midst of a calm, and the distances cataracting toward the abyss. Glaciers, suns of silver, nacreous waves, skies of embers, hideous strands at the end of brown gulfs, where giant serpents devoured by bedbugs fall down from gnarled trees with black scent. I should have liked to show children those sunfish of the blue wave, the fish of gold, the singing fish. Foam of flowers rocked my drifting, and ineffable winds winged me at times. At times a martyr, weary of poles and zones, the sea, whose sob created my gentle roll, brought up to me her dark flowers with yellow suckers, and I remained like a woman on her knees, resembling an island tossing on my sides the quarrels and droppings of noisy birds with yellow eyes, and I sailed on, when through my fragile ropes drowned men sank backward to sleep. Now I, a boat lost in the foliage of caves, thrown by the storm into the birdless air, I, whose water-drunk carcass would not have been rescued by the monitors and the Hanseatic sailboats. Free, smoking, topped with violet fog, I who pierced the reddening sky like a wall, bearing delicious good jam for good poets, lichens of sunlight and mucus of azure, who ran, spotted with small electric moons, a wild plank, escorted by black seahorses, when July's beat down with blows of cudgels, the ultramarine skies with burning funnels, I who trembled, hearing at fifty leagues off the moaning of the behemoths in heat and the thick maelstroms, eternal spinner of the blue immobility, I miss Europe, 
with its ancient parapets. I have seen sidereal archipelagos and islands whose delirious skies are open to the sea wanderer. Is it in these bottomless nights that you sleep and exile yourself, million golden birds, O future vigor? But in truth, I have wept too much. Dawns are heartbreaking. Every moon is atrocious and every sun bitter. Acrid love has swollen me with intoxicating torpor. Oh, let my keel burst. Oh, let me go into the sea. If I want a water of Europe, it is the black, cold puddle, where in the sweet-smelling twilight a squatting child full of sadness releases a boat as fragile as a May butterfly. No longer can I, bathed in your languor, O waves, follow in the wake of the cotton boats, nor cross through the pride of flags and flames, nor swim under the terrible eyes of prison ships. Hmm. That's Dylan-esque, or maybe we should say that Dylan is Rimbaudlian. The subject matter is somewhat unconventional. It takes us to unconventional places with those visions and the, the wildness of it, but the style was still fairly conventional. Rimbaud had respect for poets like Baudelaire and even Victor Hugo was more of a conventional poet, and this is in that, kind of in that style. Later, he would open up more, and both in his later verse and especially his prose poems. And we see this in A Season in Hell and Illuminations, his two major works, where he was getting disjointed and dreamy and hallucinatory. That's where he was headed. Judging him on his own terms, I think we have to call it a success, and it's been hugely influential. He went down to his core like few others, and the work he produced when he was down there is magnetic and visionary. It has a kind of fascinating power. I'll confess, I see both sides of Rimbaud. I see what people mean. The critics who say, well, this is, this is about poetry, but it's not about life. This is the self-indulgence of an artist. It doesn't dig deep into the human condition. For that, we need a, a Chekhov, an Alice Munro. We need... Well, let's use Werner Herzog as an example. When Herzog was young, he had all these visions of hauling a boat over mountains, and so he actually had a film crew do it. They were all put at risk. It was insane to do, and it's a glorious work of art. He once hypnotized the entire cast so that they would act in a certain way to give him a certain effect. And then he got older and matured and made some work that wasn't just about breaking himself down and breaking others down and touching bottom and seeing what was there, but applying some wisdom and maturity and vision, not the vision of a man who's deranged all his senses, but one who has applied the experience of the world and insight into human nature to explore deep truths and communicate those to us. John Lennon's another good example here. Yes, we get cellophane flowers of yellow and green and the kind of starry-eyed vision but we also get songs from him like Mother and Julia and Girl and Woman and the songs on the Plastic Ono Band record. John was growing up, and he let his music grow up too. Brimbo, for better or worse, doesn't really do this. He probably came closest with his work, A Season in Hell, which we'll discuss a little later. But for the most part, when he was growing up, he stopped writing. We've jumped ahead of our story. We're not quite in Paris yet. With Rimbaud, Verlaine has invited him. Rimbaud wrote his poem that we just read, and he jumped on the train, and he went to find this poet who was willing to sponsor him, was willing to express the confidence in the poems that he sent him, willing to send him a train ticket. And Rimbaud arrived to kind of a mess, actually. Verlaine's wife was 17 and pregnant. Verlaine was 26 and had just quit his job. And in walks Rimbaud. 16 years old, a little chubby, fresh-faced, a baby, practically, but oozing confidence, his voice cracking. Verlaine sketched him. You can see Verlaine's view of Rimbaud from those years. The baby Shakespeare, in Victor Hugo's phrase, and Verlaine was smitten. Verlaine and Rimbaud, I should say that Verlaine was a terrible husband, he drank way too much. He apparently abused both his wife and his infant son when his son came along. Verlaine and Rimbaud started up this wild affair. 
They ran around town, open lovers, fighting with those they encountered, diving deep into drinking and drugs. Opium was in the mix now, too, along with hashish and absinthe. Absinthe, by the way, is super alcoholic. It's powerful stuff. And hash and opium, they were, ugh. They were roaming around Paris, Rimbaud as Verlaine's companion, but also the one who was more than just a sidekick. He was putting himself forward as the genius poet of the two. He was an arrogant drunk, full of rage, full of rudeness, and he was writing poems also during the day. He believed he was better than everyone else as a poet, and maybe he was. Maybe he was more gifted, and he believed that he was a true poetic soul, and the others weren't. They were only pretenders to the throne that he was claiming for himself. But even so, you wonder why he had to be such a jerk about it. (laughs) I have a few theories. One is that he was adjusting to this sense of freedom, that he had finally escaped his mother's grip, and he was basically like the kid in college who's never been to a party before and then gets blackout drunk five nights in a row because he's new to freedom. He's adjusting to it. It's something he's wanted, and now he's got too much of it. It Takes him a while to settle down. And here's another theory or another element of this. He's someone who had such a strong conception of himself as a poet. His whole identity was that he had been called to this vocation. He was out there in that town, out there in the sticks, and he couldn't bear the idea that he was insignificant. So instead, he developed this idea of himself as a poet. He couldn't bear the idea that anyone else might be a poet and also, say, work in an office as an editor at the same time. Earn a salary. No. Rimbaud was trying for the full derangement of his senses, the immense and rational derangement of his senses. How could someone work at an office job and write poems too and say that they were following the same pursuit as Rimbaud? And maybe Rimbaud was overcompensating a bit with his behavior toward others. He knew who he was, an essentially fatherless kid from the sticks, ill-mannered, rough, dirty, and smelly, not pedigreed, and not yet, not yet successful, definitely not wealthy. And he knew that everyone would look down on him in Paris, and so he was preemptively a jerk. I know what you'll think of me. You think I care about that? That's sort of an attitude, an insecurity that comes out as arrogance. And he was, he, was, he was viewed that way. One writer refused to appear in a painting with him in Verlaine and said, I'm not going to be in a painting with pimps and thieves. In all of Paris, Rimbaud had one man on his side, his lover, Verlaine, who loved Rimbaud's poetry and was obsessed with Rimbaud as a figure. And then... Things got truly weird. Let's take our last break and come back with the rest of the story. The stormy affair between Rimbaud and Verlaine lasted only a few years. They went to London for a while and lived off of money from Verlaine's mother. Verlaine had just abandoned his wife, and now he and Rimbaud were fighting, and Rimbaud was spending his days at the British Museum in the reading room where they gave him pens and ink for free. The lights were free and the heat was free, he'd like that, and finally Verlaine went to Brussels to meet up with his wife. That didn't go great. Verlaine returned to Paris without her, but he missed Rimbaud. And so he telegraphed Rimbaud and said, let's meet at a hotel in Brussels. They did, but they were immediately fighting again. Things were getting volatile, and Verlaine was out of his mind with drink. He bought a revolver and ammunition. And then, in a drunken rage, he shot Rimbaud in the wrist. Rimbaud was... Herzog-like in his dismissal of it, though he did go to the hospital to get it wrapped up. 
And then he went to the train station to get the hell out of Brussels. Verlaine showed up there with his mother, of all people, and Verlaine still had the gun in his pocket and was acting insane. And finally, Rimbaud, fearing for his life, ran to a policeman and begged him to arrest Verlaine, told him the whole story. This was only a few hours after Rimbaud had been shot. Now the law was involved. Charges were filed based on that first shot, and Verlaine ended up sentenced to two years in prison. Rimbaud went home. Home to his hometown. What a thing to happen to the young and ambitious poet at this point, after these wild years with Verlaine in Paris and London and Brussels. He wrote a book that's generally considered one of his three major works. Remember, this is a guy whose career, from the time he was writing poems as a schoolboy, until he stopped altogether was something like five years, including all the rational derangement of the senses and this torrid affair with Verlaine. The book he wrote is called A Season in Hell. It's generally viewed as kicking off the symbolist movement, one of the pioneering works in that movement. A Season in Hell is the only work Rimbaud ever published himself. Most of the rest of his publications were poems and prose poems that he gave to Verlaine, either to publish or or that he had shown to Verlaine, and Verlaine chose to publish later, especially after Rimbaud left. The story, Rimbaud really didn't become famous until he was out of the picture, until he had given things up and he was living abroad. Before then, he was barely known. The story in A Season in Hell, the story that comes through in this verse is, is Rimbaud's relationship with Verlaine. It's him as kind of a husband to Verlaine. It's a work written in nine parts. It isn't always clear what's coming out of each part. It's enigmatic, terribly enigmatic. It's been called brilliant and near hysterical. Rimbaud seems to have been trying to work out his relationship with Verlaine and what it meant, but it's somewhat inconclusive. One of the poems is called Adieu or Farewell. It seems to be a a giving up of poetry. There's a feeling of frustration that comes through that his plan to become a poet had failed. Let's read some of that so you can hear what these prose poems are like. Autumn, this is adieu or farewell. Autumn already, but why regret the everlasting sun if we are sworn to a search for divine brightness far from those who die? as seasons turn. Autumn, our boat, risen out of a hanging fog, turns toward poverty's harbor, the monstrous city, its sky stained with fire and mud. Ah, those stinking rags, bread soaked with rain, drunkenness, and the thousands of loves who nailed me to the cross, will there never, ever be an end to that ghoulish queen of a million dead souls and bodies, and who will all be judged? I can see myself again, my skin corroded by dirt and disease, hair and armpits crawling with worms, and worms still larger crawling in my heart, stretched out among ageless, heartless, unknown figures. I could easily have died there, what a horrible memory. I detest poverty. And I dread winter, because it's so cozy. Sometimes in the sky I see endless sandy shores covered with white rejoicing nations. A great golden ship above me flutters many-colored pennants in the morning breeze. I was the creator of every feast, every triumph, every drama. I tried to invent new flowers, new planets, new flesh, new languages— I thought I had acquired supernatural powers. Ha! I have to bury my imagination and my memories. What an end to a splendid career as an artist and storyteller. If I called myself a magician, an angel, free from all moral constraint, I am sent back to the soil to seek some obligation to wrap gnarled reality in my arms, a peasant. Am I deceived? Would charity be the sister of death? For me, well, I shall ask forgiveness for having lived on lies, and that's that. But not one friendly hand, and where can I look for help? True, the new era is nothing if not harsh, for I can say that I have gained a victory. The gnashing of teeth, the hissing of hellfire, the stinking sighs subside. 
All my monstrous memories are fading. My last longings depart. Jealousy of beggars, bandits, friends of death, all those that the world passed by. Damned souls, if I were to take vengeance. One must be absolutely modern. Never mind hymns of thanksgiving. Hold on to a step once taken. A hard night. Dried blood smokes on my face, and nothing lies behind me but that repulsive little tree. The battle for the soul is as brutal as the battles of men, but the sight of justice is the pleasure of God alone. Yet this is the watch by night. Let us all accept new strength and real tenderness, and at dawn, armed with glowing patience, we will enter the cities of glory. Why did I talk about a friendly hand? My great advantage is that I can laugh at old love affairs full of falsehood and stamp with shame such deceitful couples. I went through women's hell over there, and I will be able now to possess the truth within one body and one soul. The work, A Season in Hell, the only publication that poor Rimbaud could look to in his lifetime that he was himself behind, was not well received by critics. Posterity has been much kinder, and the season in hell has been a favorite of surrealists and other bomb throwers like Henry Miller ever since. The other major work of Rimbaud's was called Illuminations. These were written before a season in hell. There were about 40 of them, 40 prose poems. These were the works that Rimbaud had written in London. Rimbaud didn't publish them at the time, but gave them to Verlaine a few years later. These are wild, too. Visionary, weird syntax, cryptic images full of puns and literary references and other verbal pyrotechnics. And then he was done. No more literature. He was not exactly renouncing an established career. All this had happened too fast for his success to find him. Much of what he'd written had not even been published yet. Verlaine put a bunch of it out by himself when he couldn't figure out where Rimbaud was and couldn't reach him. Rimbaud was done. He had a steady job. Not, well, not steady, but he was endeavoring to find a steady job now, a career, an income. Maybe that life that he used to dream about where you live off of your money and that he had announced when he was younger. It's a spiritual suicide, Camus said later. Rimbaud went from being a poet, a great poet, a poet of revolt, to being a materialist, a bourgeois figure, an establishment figure. Well, it sounds a little more adventurous than that. He wasn't sitting around and getting fat, pushing pencils in a Parisian bank. But this was the age of colonialism. And so, as Camus notes, these adventures were in fact part of upholding the status quo, the materialist status quo. So what happened? What did he do? He studied languages, Rimbaud did, German, Italian, and Spanish, and he signed up with the Dutch colonial army, which sent him to Indonesia, and after four months, he went AWOL. One can imagine Rimbaud was not... <laughs> Much as Rimbaud, even though he had given up literature, he hadn't given up his taste for freedom. Army didn't suit him. So after four months, he went AWOL and disappeared into the jungle. The Dutch wanted to shoot him. That was the penalty for deserters, but he made his way back to France on a ship, traveling incognito. He got a job in Cyprus next as a foreman on a construction site working in a stone quarry. While he was there, he picked up typhoid fever. This is, I mean, he's still in his early 20s. Not, he's about 25 now. He went to Yemen and Ethiopia. He started working as a trader, trading coffee and running guns. He wrote some articles for the Geographic Society, and he tutored some rich people's kids when he was abroad, and he sold a bunch of rifles to the king of Shewa. But the deal went sour. He opened up a store in Ethiopia. Didn't last long at that. That didn't suit him either. And then he developed a problem with his leg. He thought it was arthritis, but it got more painful than that, and his doctor's misdiagnosed his ailment and amputated his leg. And then when they studied the leg, they realized that he had had bone cancer. Rimbaud died a few months later in France on his way to Africa, where he hoped to return. What do we make of his silence? That's what it's called. His letters from this period 
don't talk about art anymore or literature or poetry. They don't talk about his former career as a poet. It's called The Silence of Rimbaud, but it's not silent. It's, it's more a strange replacement, the language of a merchant stepping in where the language of a poet no longer speaks. Rimbaud in these letters talks about deals now, business transactions, plans. He seems to have needed that. The chaos of his life as a poet had threatened to kill him, whether at the hand of his lover, a hand that was literally holding a revolver and literally fired it, or by his own miserable hand, the hand of someone in deep despair, the suicidal hand, or by the toll that his plans to derange his own senses had taken on his body. Whatever it was, he had burned out, and he wanted something steadier, more stable. He needed to get out of Paris and France to do it. That's one way to look at it, at Rimbaud's later career. Another way is to say that this was just part of his search for freedom, his real search. This was what he wanted as a boy, when he was writing the angry essay after being forced to learn Latin when he didn't want to, he didn't say, I want to be a poet in that essay. He said, I want to be a man of business. I want to be someone who earns money without working for it. This to him was freedom, the freedom that money brings. He developed this into a different view in the next few years. This transmogrified to a view of himself as a poet, I think to him he thought his mind was the way to make him free, letting his mind explore the poetic journey he wanted to take, the extremity of it. All that was what he eagerly sought out. It looked to him like freedom. There's a great story about Paul McCartney and taking LSD, his reluctance to take LSD, even when the other Beatles were and they were his mates. And he said, you know, People used to say, you might go out there and not come back. And to Paul, that sounded terrifying. Like a risk you had to factor in when you were deciding whether to take LSD. You might come back. Ooh, what if I don't? Sounds like, sounds like a horrible fate. But he said that to John, who heard the same caution, that sounded great. Like, bring it on. John didn't really want to come back. If he could get out somewhere and not come back, that was appealing. There was too much pain where he was in this world. If he could transcend all that with his mind, he'd take it. Rimbaud was on a trajectory like that, too. Go for it all. Destroy the mind. Clear it out. Empty it out. See what's out there. It was, for him, the journey that a poet was called to make. And then he did that for a few years. And what he found was not exactly free. His mind might have been free. His verse might have been free. He might have felt free with his use of language, but his body wasn't free. He was on the run. He was controlled by circumstances and his relationships. He was dependent on others. He was tied to a lover who shot him. And drugs and alcohol, we know what kind of freedom that is. Ephemeral at best. Fleeting. But also false. Soon enough, it's yet another cage that gets lowered over you when you become addicted. So the trapped animal, Rimbaud, fled. And by throwing aside the restrictions of literature, the grip that it had over him and his own feeling that his ambition had required him to do certain things that had not worked out, he maybe looked for freedom in another sense, the sense of being able to live the way you want with no one telling you what to do, no obligations, no clock to punch, independent. One needs money for that, of course. And so he kept falling into one job or another, and one also needs a healthy body, which he had when he was young, but which broke down and gave out when he was older. And finally, the boy who ran from everything ran away three times resisted all authority. That boy stopped running because he didn't have the legs for it, literally and metaphorically. His sister tells us that a priest arrived at his deathbed and Rimbaud took the last rites. The furious life of Rimbaud was over. He had no real reason to know that he would be talked about more than a hundred years later, but here we are. His quest for freedom 
took him to hell and back. And we've been inspired by his example, confused too, and sometimes exasperated and sometimes critical and sometimes dismissive, but mostly inspired ever since. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to all of you for joining me today for this look at Rimbaud. Oh, I feel exhausted by this life, and I'm not even the one who lived it. And yet, it also makes me kind of want to travel again. You should see how much time I spend looking at hotels in Thailand and Iceland and Italy and Japan and all my other favorite places in the world. Maybe I need a little freedom, too. Don't we all? In the meantime, we'll keep podcasting away, my friends, and I hope you join us for all of that. Now, and, I I said now, I should have said and, I meant to say and, not now, and, and, I hope you stay safe and healthy. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>